host of the Cooking Issues coming to you live on Newsman Studio, the Rockefeller Center, New York City. First show of 2022. Happy to be back here with, of course, with Anastasia uh, Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Feeling, feeling, feeling good. Feeling, mm-hmm. feeling ready for the new year. Yep. Can't be worse. Could yep. be. Oh wow. Wow. All right. Struck me from a business perspective. From all perspectives. Yeah. All right. All right. Good. Uh, and we got uh, John over here. How you doing, John? Doing great. Thanks. Yeah. 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 Not we- going to complain at least. So. Nice. I like that. That's my new. That's my new thing. When people say, uh, "I'm not going to say can't complain anymore," I'm going to say won't. Won't complain. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Won't complain. Yep. Leaves them thinking a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, we got Hassan in booth in the booth again. Hassan Moore, how you doing? Very good. Very good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, how How was your New Year's? Uh... New Year's is good. I stayed at home and uh, watched the ball drop. Oh yeah. They still do that. On TV, yes. Who does it? Who? But who does that now that uh, Dick Clark is dead? Um, I was watching Miley Cyrus and Pete Davidson, so uh. I'm not really sure. Uh, so wait, so Pete Davidson's a new Dick Clark? It doesn't check out, though. He's no. more like a Seacresty kind of guy. <laughs> right, but he was funny. Yeah, yeah. Staten Island Zone. Gotta love it. The only Democrat in all of Staten Island. Is that true? Is he the only Democrat in Staten Island? Probably. Yeah. Uh, and we got uh, Jackie Molecules. Where are you, Jackie? Back home in L.A. L.A., huh? You love L.A. You love it. Have you ever met... Uh, well, is, I live here. I mean... Have you, you know. met Randy Newman ever? He's still there, right? <laughs> I haven't met him. I thought when you moved to L.A., you got to meet Randy Newman. I thought that was part of the deal. <laughs> I didn't get that coupon in the mail. No? Oh, I love Randy no, Newman. No. I mean, who doesn't love Randy Newman? Randy Newman's the best. But uh, enough of that. I'm super excited. We have today a guest that we were supposed to have on prior to the new year. We had technical difficulties in the studio. Had to had to shut it down. We have had, I'm just going to tell you who it is. I mean, call, first of all, I'm going to tell you the telephone number. Get ready to write this down if you're a Patreon listener. Call in your questions to 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. And if you're listening to this and wish you could call in, join our Patreon. Very easy. Very simple. But we have today, long time waiting, I'm a huge fan, Sandor Katz. How you doing? Hi. Hi. I'd say it's a play. I wish we... I wish we'd had you on when you were in New York City so that we could have you like live in the studio because I've always wanted to meet you. For those of you, for the three people hearing this who don't already know who you are, you are kind of like the, uh, I don't know, you're the, the, you're the Papazian of, of fermentation, the Harold McGee of fermentation. In other words, like what, Harold, what Papazian was to home brewing, although I don't know that people read his book as much anymore, you are to fermentation or what, you know, Harold was to food or is to food science, you are to fermentation. You're like... The person that everyone goes back to, we've have had, I'm you know really good friends with like Ariel Johnson and Rich Shee, who've written great books on fermentation. You know, uh, Rich with Jeremy Umansky, uh, and with I've had David Zilber on the show, but we've never had you, and I'm super psyched to have you. It's a huge honor. Well, I'm so happy to be with you, and um, you know, I'm flattered by the analogies, but I would just point out that homebrewing is fermentation. <laughs> that's true. That's true, but very specific. So. Your first book on ferment, not your first book, but your first book on fermentation was Wild Fermentation, right? I, I haven't read your first, first book, the one that that uh, punk group, I think, wrote a song uh, for you about called uh, The Revolution uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved. I've not read that well, one. I must well, admit. okay, actually, you've got my sequence a little bit wrong. Wild Fermentation was my first book that came out in 2003. 
Um, and the revolution will not be microwaved came out in 2006. Oh. I mean, it really was, uh, you know, it, it's a book about um, grassroots food movements, you know, largely that I became aware of uh, as a result of my wild fermentation book tour of, you know, talking about fermentation with so many people in so many different kinds of venues. Um, you know, and then The Art of Fermentation came out in 2012. That's when I first started reading I your stuff. I read Wild that Fermentation then. in 2016. Then Fermentation is Metaphor came out last year. And then I have a brand new book that's been out for about two months that's called Fermentation Journeys. That's about uh, fermented foods and beverages that I've learned about mostly in my travels. So before we get into the new book, I want to, because I'm super, I only have the... Uh, original edition of Wild Fermentation, which I actually bought after I read The Art of Fermentation. My first book of, uh, of yours that uh, I read was The Ar- Art of Fermentation, and that's the one, you know, for the, you know, since it came out, fundamentally, whenever anyone asks me a question on fermentation on this show, because we've been doing this show for God knows how many years, I, uh, I just say, why don't you just go read The Art of Fermentation, because they, you know, he, you know, Katz has a section on it, and everyone's like, oh, you should have one on the show. So he, anyway, so here, here we go. Uh, but What's I, I I don't have your your re revision, but I read the 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 intro to the new edition of Wild Fermentation uh, online, and why don't you talk about the idea of revising? Because I think revising something like that, right, which is kind of a seminal book, has got to be really really interesting. You said you updated it a lot, but what did you change? And more importantly, what about your your mental attitude? Because you learned so much between the two revisions. What about the, your mental attitude change? Like, how did you approach the revision? Well, I mean, that, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, I tried to really leave the spirit of the book, um, you know, uh, 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 you know as, as it was. But, um, you know, I would say that the main thing is that, you know, as a result of what began as a book tour for wild fermentation and sort of has evolved into a lifestyle as an itinerant fermentation educator, um, you know, I just got a lot more experienced at, uh, you know, talking about fermentation to people and, and, and sort of developed a, you know, clearer sense of conceptual progressions and, you know, what common misunderstandings were. And so, you know, really I feel like I was able to bring to bear on the revised edition of Wild Fermentation, you know, just sort of my, um, you know, experience as a fermentation educator, even even more than my experience as a fermenter, although you know certainly, certainly you know that 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 played into it as well. But let me let me address this question of revival, um, and you know really the perspective I have come to have is that you know fermented foods and beverages are an essential aspect of how people you know everywhere make effective use of whatever food resources are available to them, and you know fermentation is practiced everywhere has been practiced everywhere. Um, and, you know, prior to the, uh, you know, centralization of food production, um, you know, which really is mostly a phenomenon of the 20th century, um, you know, fermentation was, you know, sort of 
enmeshed in people's lives, if not in the life of every single household, you know, in the life of every community. So people at least would be aware of the process and what went into it. And, you know, part of food centralization is, you know, we just become less aware of the processes by which, you know, our food comes into being. And so, you know, fermentation has become... um, increasingly mysterious to people over the same period of time that, um, you know, the field of microbiology emerged, we became aware of bacteria. Initially, we were afraid of bacteria because we thought of them primarily as um, uh, uh, agents of disease. Um, but increasingly, really, since the new millennium, we've been hearing the flip side of the story, how important bacteria and other microorganisms to, you know, our effective uh, uh, functioning, uh, to the effective functioning of the soil, to the health of plants and all kinds of organisms. Um, You know, the revival of fermentation is really people reclaiming this important process that is element of, uh, you know, all of our culinary traditions, you know, the cultures that all of us come from, um, you know, and just, you, you know, how to make effective use of food resources. Don't you think it's kind of like a, it's interesting because it's a, it's a, there's a double whammy, right? If you read, so certainly industrialization, uh, the kind of uh, pa- pablumification of uh, food, you know, is and was a real phenomenon, especially, you know, in this country and parts of Europe, for sure. But the assault on that kind of th- stuff started much earlier, as you say, with the kind of with the discovery of bacteria. You read all of the books from the, you know, mid to early mid mid eighteen hundreds. Sylvester Graham, even all of these people were were petrified of fermentation, right? You right. You read uh, this is like the era when baking, you know, baking powder uh, was considered a more healthy uh, thing to make bread with than yeast because of the the, the nasty bugs that might uh, be involved, I and mean, God forbid, salt risen bread, which is also written about. So. I, what do you think about that double whammy, like the, the, the fear of science and, and, and microbiology and then the industrialization? you think they're, they're both to blame, or do you blame one more than the other? Well, I mean, I would just say, I, I, I mean, I would say, I would say both of them. I mean, the, the thing is that the, the products of fermentation have never... Uh, you know, gone out of popularity. The products of fermentation have enjoyed enduring popularity. You know, think about bread, cheese, chocolate, coffee, beer, wine, um, uh, you, you know, vinegar, soy sauce, fish sauce. The, the products of fermentation have really just enjoyed enduring popularity. So, you know, it's not as if, you know, people stopped enjoying the products of fermentation because they became afraid of bacteria. You know, it's more that people got squeamish about the process. People started sort of projecting onto it. People started imagining that you need a laboratory with controlled conditions and, you know, a, 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 a microbiologist with a micro scope in order to do it safely. Um, so, I mean, I don't think people ever became afraid of the products of fermentation. I mean, it's more that people began to imagine that there was some, you know, sort of, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, science or something beyond their capabilities involved in the process. Right. Well, it's a, you know, in that in that last you know bit you were just saying, I think one of the nice things about your book is kind of a a go try it attitude. You know what I mean? It's a without being unsafe, without giving kind of unsafe advice. Right. Otherwise, I wouldn't recommend. If I thought you were giving unsafe advice, I wouldn't recommend your book to people. But um, 
you know, it's like the kind of go try it attitude, I think, is one of the reasons why, especially the art of fermentation, so successful. Like, is that, was that a stated, was that a, was that a goal before you wrote it, or was that just a byproduct of who you are? Oh, I mean, you know, my goal from the very beginning, from, you know, um, um, uh, you know, my initial experiences teaching about fermentation, which was a small grassroots event in 1998, uh, the zine that I wrote prior to the book Wild Fermentation, all of my books, all the teaching I do. I mean, my objective is to demystify fermentation and, and um, you know, help people who are interested feel confident in, in, in doing it themselves at home. And, you know, fermentation is very, very much a strategy for safety. Fermentation is not dangerous. Foods that are fermented are safer than the equivalent food not fermented. Um, uh, you know, the process is very much a strategy for safety. There's nothing to be afraid of. You know, that's not to say that it's not impossible in any ferment that anything could go wrong. But, you know, what the practice of fermentation is all about is, is um, manipulating environment conditions, which has the result of encouraging the growth of certain organisms and simultaneously discouraging the growth of other organisms. And, you know, really what you need to know in order to ferment successfully and safely is what are the conditions you're trying to create. If you're fermenting sauerkraut, you're trying to get the vegetables submerged. That's the environmental manipulation. If, they're all, ex if all the surfaces are exposed to air, it's going to become a big cloud of hairy mold. You you prevent the aerobic uh, 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 mold spores that are always there from developing by getting them submerged and depriving them from a flow of oxygen. And in that condition, lactic acid bacteria will dominate every single time. And every fermented food or beverage is something like that. It's creating the conditions where the organisms that you want will be able to thrive. Well, on that creating condition, by the way, uh, you can't know this, but you just hyper-triggered Nastasia with spores and mold. How you doing, Stas? I'm doing okay. You're doing all right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I used to, as a just-to-be-mean, send her text images of mold spores and then just call her and say, spore, just to mess with her. But yeah, anyway, yeah I'll stop. Uh, on that, what, so one of the interesting things, I think, is like, and I'll go back to the McGee analogy, Harold McGee. So, you know, when he wrote his book on food and cooking... He was interested in, in kind of showing the breadth of science, but there wasn't yet this kind of uh, movement in kitchens to do all of these new things using scientific techniques, right? So then, but then he became kind of a, you know, a, a, a totemic figure for, for that group of people. You write this, uh, you know, a series of books, and then a couple of years after that, maybe as a result, I don't know, I don't know whether you want to take credit for it or not, but there's a huge wave of new styles of fermentation, some that have never been seen before. So first, an explosion of traditional fermentation in the restaurant scene, I'm talking about, because a lot of our listeners are restaurant people, uh, in, in the restaurant scene, but then also an explosion of trying old techniques on new ingredients, kind of new environments, right? So what are your thoughts on that kind of explosion? I'm sure it's gratifying in some way that, you know, because I know that a lot of these people are looking up to you or looking at your, or at your work, but uh, what are your thoughts about some of the products that are coming out of it? And then as a follow-up, uh, you know, some of these aren't traditional techniques. So uh, traditional techniques, obviously, the safety is built into the fact that we've been doing it for zillions of years and, and nobody died, right? The new techniques, though, are applying it to a new situation. Do you ever worry about that stuff? Well, I mean, first of all, let, uh, well, okay. Let, let me say first of all that it is, you know, it's extremely gratifying, um, you know, that 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 
you know, my work has resonated and, um, um, you know, that it has been, you know, kind of part of this, um, you know, broad revival of the fermentation arts. And, 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 and that's really thrilling to me. Um, you know, I don't think I can, you know, take any credit for it, really. I mean, I think I, 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 had, I had, like, supremely good luck in the timing of, you know, sort of my burgeoning interest and writing a book because, you know, I think that the, the, the single factor that has made um, uh, people so receptive to fermentation, and as I said earlier, the products of fermentation have never, ever waned in popularity. It's just that, like, people weren't doing it and people weren't thinking about the process. But, you know, once we started reading about the human microbiome and, you know, the complexity of the bacterial populations upon which we are dependent for our well-being, you know, people started seeking out probiotic foods, bacteria-rich foods, um, you know, really with the objective of restoring biodiversity in the gut because that's related to our digestion, our immune function, our mental health, and almost every other system in our bodies. And I think that, you know, once there was news about the microbiome, that was a natural progression for more and more people to get interested again in um, uh, uh, in in fermented foods and in practicing fermentation in their kitchens, whether they're, you know, just cooking for themselves and their families or they're uh, in a restaurant context. Um, I mean, in terms of the innovation, I mean, you know, I mean, it's exciting to me to see so much experimentation, but I would say, like, nobody has invented any completely new fermented foods and beverages for hundreds and possibly thousands of years. So all we're doing is remixing. Right. I mean, it's, I'm like thinking of like, uh, you know, for instance, so, I mean, like I, Jeremy. I mean, per, you know, personally, I'm not, I, I mean, I'm not especially, you know, I'm not especially worried about um, um, the remixing that, 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 that people are doing. I, you know, I hope that they're doing th- in, 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 in thoughtful ways. But, I, you know, I haven't heard any stories of disasters. The biggest disasters I've heard of are, you know, people's exploding bottles of um, kombucha and other homemade carbonated sugary beverages. Yeah, you know what my issue with kombucha is, is that when people label kombucha, they uh, they label the kombucha, but they, like, okay, so someone gives you kombucha, and they say it has X percent alcohol content, right? And you taste it, and you're like, okay, clearly a large percentage of, this al- of the alcohol has been converted to acetic acid, right? But they haven't really yeah. me- measured that, and I'm fine with it either way, by the way, as long as it, so, like, I'm, I'm on kind of the opposite spectrum of, from you, and, like, um, in the sense that I only care about taste, and then I, like that's that's you just that's my job. What? Taste, taste. That's all I care about is how does it taste. taste. Okay. And culture, taste and okay, culture. I'm, I'm, the, I'm glad you have a singular focus. Yeah, yeah. Taste and culture. Those it's are the okay only two to things. It's okay to be multifaceted and yeah. think about multiple things. Yeah, yeah. and then I, I can't. Uh, I, I mentally don't have the bandwidth for it. But um, you know how like so you, you know you, you take it on and, and you write it in, in the in the introduction to wild fermentation and then again in the art of fermentation kind of. You started coming to it from, uh, you know, a- as you said today, from a more health, uh, not a health, but like a, a more holistic, like whole body, whole world microbiome kind of uh, viewpoint. But what do you, you know, how much of it for you is well, just this me, stuff's I mean, delicious? Let, let me clarify that a little bit. Yeah. Because, I mean, really, like, you know, I, I mean, my draw to fermentation started as a kid because I loved pickles. So, I mean, I actually would say that I mean, as much as I've written about the other things, you know, flavor uh, is the first thing that sort of drew my attention to fermentation. 
you know, then, you know, when I was experimenting with macrobiotics in my 20s, um, you know, I started reading a little bit about probiotics and the health benefits. And, and that, you know, was like, and that made me think, oh, these foods that I already love are good for me, too. I'm going to really try to make sure I eat them every day. But I was still buying them in the store. The thing that motivated me to learn how to make sauerkraut to open up the joy of cooking and find a recipe for how to make my own sauerkraut was that in 1993, I moved from New York to rural Tennessee and I started keeping a garden. And, um, you know, I was such a naive city kid that it had never occurred to me that in a garden, all of the cabbage would be ready at about the same time. But that's what I encountered is this obvious reality of agricultural production. And I had a nice row of cabbage and I knew that sauerkraut had something to do with, with preserving cabbage. So, uh, you know, so, so I made some sauerkraut and it was delicious and I kept on making more and experimenting and trying other ferments. And, you know, that was really my gateway into fermentation. But I would say that, you know, it was the practical value of preservation was what made me actually do it. I was definitely thinking about, you know, health and probiotics and digestion. But ultimately, you know, I love food and I was motivated by, by, by the flavors. And I think that, you know, all of these things and more are true of fermented foods and beverages. And, you know, these are the three of the main reasons that I hear from people about what, what got them interested. The fourth is culture. You know, people who, um, you know, have some memory of some practice that their grandparents used to do in annual fermentation that, you know, fell by the wayside that they're trying to recapture. So, uh, you know, I, I've, I've talked to so many people who migrated from some other part of the world and, you know, miss some, uh, you know, fermented food or beverage from home and are, and are, and are interested in, in trying to figure out how to cre recreate it. So, you know, I, I mean, for me, one of the exciting things about fermentation is how multifaceted it is. And it's not reductionistic. It's not just about umami flavors. It's not just about probiotics. It's not just about preservation. I mean, you know, there's just so many practical benefits to fermentation. So uh, cabbage, you made me think of cabbage. Do you have any tips for doing whole heads of cabbage so that I can have the whole leaf if I'm not going to do like giant buckets of, so that I can bury them in other, in other chopped up leaves? I, I can't bury the whole heads. What do, you, what, what do you do for that? Do you break the leaves off and then ferment them in a pile or what, do you have any tips for that? Well, uh, you know, okay, so one, one hybrid method. So I do, just, to, just to add a little bit of context, in, in, in fermentation journeys, um, you know, I have some stories and some recipes from my time in Croatia, including the idea of, um, uh, uh, you know, fermenting a bunch of whole heads of cabbage with the cores cut out in a brine and using the, 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 the leaves of the cabbage, the whole soured leaves, as the stuffing for making stuffed cabbage. It's, it's the best. It's the best um, ever, by the way. You know, a hybrid method that I've done a fair amount in a modest size crock, you know, let's say a you know, two, three-gallon size crock, you can't really do it in anything smaller than that, is, you know, shred half of your cabbage and then leave, you know, one large or two very small heads whole with the cores cut out and just bury the whole heads of cabbage in the shredded cabbage. Yeah. For those of you that have never made stuffed cabbage leaves with fully fermented leaves, you are missing out. You are missing out. It is the best, by, right or wrong, by far and away, the best way to make stuffed cabbage. Like, without question. Like, 
And and in southeastern Europe, uh, you know, former Yugoslavia states, uh, you know, Croatia and its neighbors, um, you know, that's the typical way of fermenting cabbage is whole heads of cabbage. And then, you know, if they want to serve you sauerkraut, they'll take one of those fermented whole heads and shred it. But as you say, I mean, they're used for these just extraordinarily delicious uh, uh, cabbage rolls, stuffed cabbage rolls. And if you live in New York City, you can go to the Ridgewood Pork Store and they sell whole like fermented leaves, but uh, they're, they're pasteurized, so it's not the same. It's not, they, don't, they no longer ferment their own. The pasteurized stuff, it's... Sour, pasteurized sauerkraut is so sad. Isn't it sad? Isn't it a sad thing? Taste-wise. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, personally, I would say I have never met a sauerkraut I didn't like. Okay. And, um, you know, my, my early experiences of sauerkraut as a kid were, you know, what the hot dog vendors in New York are using, which, you know, I would say now is not the highest quality sauerkraut. It's certainly not live sauerkraut. It's the worst. But, um, uh, you know, I have never met a kraut I didn't like. And I love to cook with sauerkraut. I mean, sometimes I talk to people who are scandalized that I would ever cook sauerkraut because, um, you know, because of the probiotics. But, um I don't know. I mean, it's 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 the basis of so many wonderful dishes. Oh my God, I love to make Hungarian sauerkraut soup. Uh, sometimes I make sauerkraut pierogies. I love to make a bigos, which is this uh, Polish stew where you marinate the vegetables in kraut. Uh, I'm sorry, the meat in kraut, and then you um, you know, and then you stew them right in the in the sauerkraut. You know, incredibly delicious. You oh, yeah. want to make sure you eat a little bit of it raw to get the probiotics, but you know, it's it's fun to cook with sauerkraut. Oh, no, I don't mind cooking it. It's just the stuff that they sell in the packages, they don't just pasteurize it. They jack it with benzoate, and it tastes bad. The texture is terrible. Like, it's just, you should come mm. back to New York and try, tr- just get the sauerkraut that comes in the plastic bag. You're going to be sad. Don't you? John, it's sad, right? You've had it. It is, yeah. It's not very good. It's a sad kraut. It's a sad yeah, yeah, kraut. Yeah. Well, but, you know, I mean... I mean, I get it. You know, people are used to paying nothing for their food, and and to get you know good quality kraut from um, you know organic vegetables. Um, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of small regional brands out there now, but none of them are cheap. And um, you know, we're all we're, we're we're all trained to just buy the cheapest thing we can. Yeah. But what I will say is that the largest traditional sauerkraut manufacturer in the United States, Great Lakes Kraut, you know, in the last couple of years, they've introduced a line of raw kraut because that's what people want. So let me get to your new book because I got to get your new book, and then I got to, we have questions from uh, from our listeners. Uh, I want to get to before we go. So on fermentation journeys, first of all, I have to say when I was reading the introduction, like very early, you say that I'll paraphrase, you're not going to yuck anybody's yum. And so for those of you that have been, uh, well, we say in my family, don't yuck, don't yuck somebody else's yum. In other words, you're not, you're not out to poo poo anybody else's food, right? So you're not going to, you're never going to come down negatively on a food stuff, right? Because that's just not your bag. That's just not how you, so, you know, Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I would definitely, I, I would definitely never put anybody down for the, you know, for the food that they, for the the food that they like to eat. Even right. if I don't, you know, even if I taste it and it doesn't appeal to me, right. then I would, you know, I would just, I would just think to myself like, oh, I haven't learned to like that yet. So, for those of you that don't know, the theory of the book, right, is is that you're, it's uh, you're writing it during the pandemic, but it's about all of these places that you visited over the years, uh, all over the world. 
meeting people, doing doing uh, fermentation uh, courses and lectures, and going to um, events, and just all of the great fermented things you've tasted all over the world as a result of this journey that that you know being a fermentation guru has put you on, and you're kind of putting them in in, in a book. So it's not a how. To in the way it's not a direct how-to in the way that uh, you know the art of fermentation is. It's more as it says fermentation journeys. So you have all these yeah. around the world Although, things. I mean, it is recipe. It is practical oriented. I mean, it's recipes and you know how to make a lot of foods. Right, but the tenor of it is different. It's more like here's who I hung out with and here's the palm wine we made. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Lots of stories. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and context. Right, and so. And so instantly, though, when you said you weren't going to poo-poo anything, I was like, oh, man, there go half my questions because I want to know the stuff that we've never had. So, for instance, I will tell the, the listeners that you have tasted – you are the only living human I've ever spoken to who has tasted Kivyut. I don't even know whether I'm pronouncing it right because I've never met anyone who has ever had it. Uh, am I pronouncing it correctly, Kivyut? No, no. That, that section was by a Greenlander microbiologist friend of mine. Oh, you didn't write that section? You didn't taste Kivyut? No. Oh. No. I misread. Sorry. <laughs> I have not been to Greenland. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I misread. But I would love to go there sometime. I just, I just looked um, up the Kivy and read the I, section. And I yeah. think I will because I've become friendly with this, um, uh, you know, with this young Greenlander woman who is a microbiologist. So, I mean, um, I, and, um, you know, she's studying the traditional fermented foods of, of, of her homeland. You want to tell people? She's, you know, she, she's writing about them. Yeah, tell people um, about so the I product. invited her to, 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 to write about Kivyak in, in my book, but I have not tried it myself. Do you want to describe the, product, uh, describe the product to people so that they know what we're talking about? Because it's like a fascinating ferment, like it's crazy ferment. Sure. So, so um, um, you know, Kiviak is a traditional uh, uh, ferment from the northern part of Greenland. Um, you know, like you know, literally among the most northern permanent human settlements that there are. Um, and uh, you know, in, in 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 the far northern places all around the world, I mean, people are utterly dependent on fermentation. People never could have settled those regions if they didn't have some effective methods to preserve food resources from the summertime to get them through the wintertime. Um, and the winter is long. Um, and so Kiviak is basically these little birds. Uh, uh, generally, they're birds called ox, which are very easy to catch at a certain point of the year. I mean, they, they have these nets on long poles, and they can catch dozens of them uh, uh, in each net full. They just sort of squeeze the birds with their fingers, you know, which stops their heart. And then they collect hundreds of these birds and stuff them in the skin of a seal. And then they sew it up and seal it with um, uh, some of the seal fat. And then they just put it under rocks, um, protecting it from the sun. And, um, you know, sort of leave it in the, um, uh, like, you know, near, near the coast, um, you know, and, and, and really evaluate by smell when it's ready to eat. It's on my list. It's definitely on my list. I got it to someday. I don't actually. You know what? I will die without trying it. I know I'm going to die without trying it. But it's on my list. I've tried. <laughs> ma- I've tried many of the other ones. I. I've done the surströmming. Do you like that one? Well, or no? you know, it's not exactly. I. You know, it's not exactly an export food. It's a survival yeah. food that you know. You know, people. You know, people who live in the northern communities in in Greenland uh, 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 eat. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of. 
a lot of the ferments in the world that just do, you know just do not get shipped around the world. You know, they're just to sustain the people who are doing them. I know, but it's like, uh, I again, I don't get to travel that much to, to places, but there there are things that you read about that you just have no idea what they're going to taste like, and so you just jones to taste them. You know what I mean? And so, like, that's one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I I, 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 I understand that. Yeah, the, the other one for me that I'm, I know I'm never going to get to do is uh, in the 90s, I think it was the FAO came out with a book called uh, traditional fermented foods of Sudan or something. The title is very close. Yeah, yeah. To that. yeah. That, that's not the FAO. That's um, Hamid Durar. It's Sudanese anthropologist wrote that. Oh, and uh, amazing. I, I read that and I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to get to taste these like 8 billion different awesome ferments like that produced from, you know, the, the, the products there. I'm never going to get to taste. I have no, I have no reference even to what they're going to taste like. It's so, uh, you know, I guess it's good that you die with wanting more, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I mean, one of the br- brilliant things about that book, and I mean, I really, I, I love that book. Um, you know, to me, that is just one of the best books about fermentation that's ever been written. Um, but I mean, it's very, very detailed. I mean, I have made things based on descriptions in that book. Now, I've only made things out, like I made, I made a, a style of sorghum beer. Uh, from Sudan using his description, and it worked really well, and it was it was incredibly delicious. I wrote about it in Art of Fermentation, but um, yeah, you know, I mean, certain of the foods just require specific plants that are from that region that you're not going to be able to find in New York where you are, or in Tennessee where I am, or you know, in most places that aren't Sudan. Yeah, yeah. Now again, it's fine to die wanting to try more things. Uh, what to what what to you is the most challenging style of fer- ferment like uh for cuz i think one of the things about you know here you know standard like american western western palate we do a lot of we're fine with most lacto stuff right uh you know over the past couple of you know years we've all become you know more accustomed to uh, you know to other styles of ferments but we don't do that well a lot of us with uh with a uh, um perfringens based stuff like some people can't do the salt risen bread or like redded cassava uh some people here have issues with uh things like uh stinky tofu although i like it you know what i mean so like what do you find for kind of like standard you know mid-american western palates is the more are the more challenging styles natto yeah no, I was I was I was thinking I was thinking about natto. That was that was the first thing that came to my mind. And uh, you know, natto is this Japanese soybean ferment. Um, I have a big section about natto um, um, in fermentation journeys, and actually more than about natto itself, about um, uh, uh, natto-like foods found in other places. Um, and, um, you know, really in many places across Asia, let's see, in, um, uh, you know, China and Burma, um, um, I've encountered them. Uh, I met a woman from uh, Nagaland in the far eastern part of, of, of uh, India, and uh, uh, they use something like natto there. Um, all across West Africa, people use condiments that microbiologically are just like natto, um, except they're made with different kinds of beans, like African locust beans. 
Yeah, but th- those, so, th- those um, things are... I mean, that's a, that's a food that, like, I actually have come to find incredibly delicious and flavorful. Um, uh, but, you know, my observation about how outside of Japan almost everybody is using it is instead of eating it wet, sticky, slimy, and I do think it's the texture more than the flavor that, you know, so many Westerners are squeamish about with natto. But in most of the other traditions, it's dried. Yeah. And then it's ground up or pulverized and used as a seasoning that way. And I've been doing that at home, and, uh, you know, I have yet to meet anybody who doesn't like it. You know, even people who are very squeamish about food, who I'm absolutely certain would not go for uh, fresh, sticky natto, love the condiments that I've been making based on dried natto. So I think for a lot of people, it's really the texture more than the flavor that they find kind of, um, you know, scary. So if I dry natto, you think it's going to taste, or you, you're telling me it's going to taste similar to like a netatu? What's the Nigerian word for netatu? It just went out of my head. Oh, my God. Uh, um, dawa dawa? Yeah, yeah. Like parkia, like fermented yeah. parkia biglobosa, yes. Uh, like, um, yeah. yeah. So the... Um, yeah, yeah, I'm going to tell you that, 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 that there's very similar, I mean, they're made from different beans, so there's a different flavor, but the flavor of the fermentation, the alkaline byproducts, the, the whiff of ammonia is the same. Because netitu is delicious. Delicious. Um, all right. Uh, I have to ask these questions uh, that are specifically for you, or I will get my uh, head taken off by my crew. All right, from Prashant Ganesh. Uh, this is Prashant from Florida. I've been making yogurt at home for the past 18 months. Of course, this came in a while ago, so it's been a lot longer than 18 months now, Prashant. Sorry. Uh, using yogurt culture from my family. I was unable to make yogurt for two months and would like to know how to restart making it. When I started making it again, the taste seems off in all four attempts. One, it was extremely sour. Two, it had a, a, a weird taste that uh, he doesn't know how to describe. And he was wondering if he had uh, any suggestions for how to revive uh, his family's yogurt starter and make it taste better. And I was also wondering if you had suggestions on how to best preserve the culture when I'm not able to make it for an extended period of time. So that's from Prashant. Yeah, I mean, I would tell, say that I regularly go two months between batches of yogurt. That's about how frequently I make yogurt. Sometimes I'll go three or four months. Um, the key is to always leave a full, fresh jar to use as your starter. If you're using a jar that you've been slowly eating and, um, you know, it's 90% empty, what that empty space becomes occupied with is air. Air has oxygen. That supports a whole other set of organisms being able to grow that will thrive in the presence of oxygen. So, you know, my observation is that, uh, you know, a half-empty jar of yogurt that sits around for several weeks gets this yeasty flavor. Its flavor is transformed by this sort of new group of organisms that are able to flourish as a result of the abundance of oxygen in the environment. So, you know, the way I've dealt with this is I just always keep, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, an unopened jar. I mean, every, every batch that I do, I, I, I generally do it in pint-sized mason jars. And one jar I'll just pick out and I'll almost mummify it in masking tape. I'll write, starter, do not eat. I'll bury it in the back of my fridge. And, um, 
you know, use that as the starter. So it's an unopened batch that hasn't developed that, that, that kind of yeastiness. So that's my, you know, that's my suggestion for how to avoid this problem. I wonder if a vacuum bag Now, as for how to bring back the, you know, the starter that's gotten, you know, uh, excessively sour and yeasty, I, I mean, I don't even know that you can. Um, but, you know, what I would do is try doing a couple of generations and see if it comes back. And, um, you, know, this is, you know, this is one of the reasons. I mean, ju- just because fermentations can go bad, when you have a starter that's important to you, you know, it's really good to not be the only guardian of the starter. It's, that's, why it's, that's one reason why it's really good to share these things and make sure, you know, other members of the family and, you know, and friends of yours use it so that, you know, if you have a problem with yours, you know, it's decentralized. There are, there are backups around. And this in from Tark Rashti, uh, I had some trouble with fermenting a hot sauce in my hot, humid New York apartment this past summer. Basically, keeping my jar outside the fridge made it ferment too fast, but inside the fridge it was too slow. Are there any hacks to achieving a happy medium in terms of temperature when I can't really control the ambient temperature in my kitchen very well? Thanks. Well, I mean, I definitely have the same issue. I mean, I, I would just never make hot sauce in the middle of the summer. You know, I, I would always wait until, you know, I mean, pepper plants start producing in the heat of the summer, but they keep on producing until it cools down. And when it's cooling down is the time to ferment them, if you want to ferment them for any length of time. Um, you know, definitely, you know, if it's in the, you know, if it's in the, you know, high 80s and 90s, uh, you know, if you try to ferment things, at, you know, at ambient temperature, they're going to ferment super, super fast. I mean, I would say the better option would be to put it in the fridge where it's going too slowly, wait for ambient temperatures to cool down, and then ferment it at ambient temperatures. Yeah. Also, your kitchen is going to be the hottest place. And also in your kitchen, up high is going to be the hottest place. And also anywhere near above your fridge, because your fridge is putting out heat, is going to be your hottest place. So the worst place in the world to keep that ferment is up high on a shelf somewhere near your fridge in the kitchen. Absolute worst place in your entire house to keep something if you want to keep it cold. Yeah. from Monty Zakowski, uh, are there any ferments involving oil? I remember a Chicago pizza place with pickled vegetables and olive oil as a condiment, and it was oh so good. I assume they brine the veggies first, then packed in oil. Always wondering what other fermented products involve oils. Thanks, Monty from Jacksonville, Oregon. Well, I mean, there are lots of fermented products that involve oil, um, but the oil becomes a limiting factor in them. Um, so, sure, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, um, um, oh, my God, I made this wonderful, like, um, uh, um, um, eggplant escabeche, an, an Argentinian recipe, um, and it was all in olive oil. It was so delicious, so delicious. But, you know, it's not something that's designed to be preserved for, um, you know, for six months or a year. It's something that, like, sits on your counter for two weeks, and then you want to eat it. Um, uh, so, you know, oil just becomes a bit of a limiting factor because of its potential for rancidity. Like when I visited um, the, the Momofuku test kitchen years ago and, and um, uh, Dan Felder was, was running it and, and he was showing me their process for making pistachio miso, um, you know, they had to run the, the pistachio mash through a centrifuge to remove the bulk of the oil. 
in order to prevent it, um, 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 you know, getting go, going rancid. So, you know, there's a lot of fermentation traditions that use either a little bit or a lot of oil, but generally they're for, you know, shorter-term preservation as a result of the oil. Yeah, they used my centrifuge to do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, pistachio oil, intensely delicious, by the way. But I'll tell you what, making pistachio <laughs> oil with a centrifuge, pain in the behind. Pain in the behind. Well, what about, though, people who use uh, very kind of uh, rancidity-resistant oil, right? Like, uh, so, like, uh, mustard oil and Indian oil-based pickles. But what is the function of the oil? Yeah, there? and also, generally, those are using very small proportions of oil. Right. But what's the function of, an oil in, of the oil in Indian oil pickle? That's interesting. I'm, 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 actually, not, I'm, I'm actually not certain. You know, I mean, I, I, I've always imagined that it was primarily, um, you know, about flavor, but I couldn't say. Yeah, me neither. I, I love them, and yet I have no idea why they're made the way they are. But they're so delicious, right? Well, you know, so, you know, one of the things that I've just been learning over time is, you know, these things don't always have a totally rationalistic explanation. You know, sometimes people just do them because that's how they were shown to do them. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't under, always understand, like, why they're doing what they're doing. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think that's just a reality. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, interesting folklore around, you know, fermentations that, um, you know, I'm, I, you know I, 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 I don't think you need to do <laughs> necessarily. Right. Will Robinson writes in, I have a batch of soy sauce fermenting at the moment. It's approximately seven months old. Soybean a batch and, of what? I'm sorry? Uh, soy sauce. Uh, it's approximately okay. seven months old, soybean and roasted barley. I'm wondering what I should do with the lees when I strain and bottle it. Are there any culinary uses aside from back slopping into a new batch or using it to kickstart some miso? I'm having a surprisingly hard time finding any applications. I'm assuming it's too high in salt for the compost pile, and I'd hate to waste it. Thanks. Will from Chicago. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I certainly worry about putting it in the compost pile. You know, I mean, that salt, that salt will get distributed, and and you know, it's it it, it it will it will break down. But I mean, it's flavorful. Like when I've done that, um, uh, you know, I've I've incorporated it. I, I mean, I haven't found like a great use for a large amount of it, but it's full of flavor. Like you know, you can mix it into stuff. You can use it as a seasoning. Can you dehydrate it? And powder it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure you could dehydrate it. Yeah, dehydrate yeah. and powder it, and then it'll last forever. Dehydrate and powder everything if you can, right? If you have it, powder I, mean, I it. dehydrate a lot of things. I mean, I, you know, I, I have, uh, you know, I dehydrate kraut. I have, um, I, you know, I have, um, you know, crystals of brine salts. I have, uh, you know, um, um, what I call eau de kraut, which is just, you know, kraut juice cooked down uh, uh, to a, a, a level of intensity. Um, um, but, yeah, I mean, dehydration is, a, is a, a great thing to do. The other thing is, if you really, you know, if you use a press, you'll end up with, you know, shockingly little residue. So what kind of press do you, rec- what, what kind of press do you recommend? Like, uh, I mean, my, I have a serious... I, mean, I just have press. a, you know, I just have a little press that I, that I, uh, 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 
that I bought online. Its its capacity is probably like two quarts. It's it's very small. Um, uh, it has a um, uh, you know a, a cylinder, and then there's a, a a top that fits inside the cylinder, and then you just sort of screw it down, and then there's a spigot at the bottom, and it sort of forces it forces the liquid out. The the, the tighter you press it. Yeah, I used to. Uh, so when I was at the bar, we had uh, we had a, a, a serious hydraulic press. You know, like from a a shop that I modified, but then we bought a bunch of super bag material that was really cheap to put in the press. Do you use what what kind of uh, fabric do you use? Do you have a good source for that stuff? I just use like a nylon mesh bag. Yeah. Oh, like a like a like a re- repurposed paint strainer kind of a situation. Uh, no, I mean I, th- I, I um I bought it at a culinary supply place. Um, yeah. You know, the, those are all repurposed paint strainers. What I use this mostly for is, that, you know, I make a lot of uh, sake, miju, different styles of rice alcohol. And then after the fermentation, um, you know, I like to give it a good, you know, I, I, I always use those bags to strain it. And you, those I'll typically just press with my hands. But, you know, to get as much of the, um, you know, fermented liquid out. Um, and then, I mean, I love, to, I love to play with the kasu. That's the Japanese name for the residue from making sake, the, you know, decomposed rice along with all the of it. But it's beautiful flavor, still has so much enzyme activity. It still has so much yeast activity. Um, you know, it has just like incredibly varied applications. And I have a little section of fermentation journeys about it. Right. Ten years ago, I thought sake leaves was going to become huge. Uh, sake leaves was everywhere. And then all of a sudden, it's like almost like it was the same way that I thought fennel pollen was going to be the new it thing. And it like was about to become the new it thing. And then it didn't. I don't know what happened. Like uh, people. Well, uh, the I'm, thing is that you need sake. You, you need to be making sake or miju to have to have uh, a, a kasu. So, I mean, I don't really see how that's going to become the next big thing unless sake becomes the next big thing. Now people are working on that. Yeah. And, you know, these things don't have to be the next big thing. You know, it's, it's, it's fine for, um, <laughs> you know, it's fine for them to be, um, um, you know, obscure things that, you know, only the people who are playing with those ferments get to, get to experiment with. That's not a terrible thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Miguel, Miguel Kuntz writes in, uh, kind of a basic question, but what are Sandor's top tips for avoiding calm yeast in lacto-ferments? And so that's the white garbage that goes on the top. I just kind of ignore it. Am I wrong? I mean, that's me. I, I just kind of take it off and then don't worry about it. Am I wrong about that? But what are your top tips for avoiding no. it? That's exactly what I do, too. Um, so, I mean, you know, my observations are it, it grows much more vigorously in a warm environment than a cool environment. If you can keep it in a cooler spot, you'll have less issues with that. But, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's nearly inevitable. Unless you have some sort of a engineered system designed to protect the surface of your ferment from oxygen, you know, the surface is the place that has the interface with the oxygen air, and that's where aerobic life forms are going to uh, be able to flourish, and, you know, that's what calm yeast is. It's entirely um, uh, 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 harmless. In, in China, I watched the chef of a 500-seat restaurant just mix the calm yeast right back into the um, uh, 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 crock of, of pickled vegetables. Um, typically, I don't like to mix it in. I try to remove it as best I can, but if some of it dissipates in, I don't worry about it at all. Um, uh, there's a consensus that it's utterly harmless. Um, you know, if it really bothers you, I would say the thing to do 
is, you know, invest in one of these uh, 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 engineered systems designed to protect the system from uh, the, the, the surface from oxygen. Personally, I generally don't use those because, you know, I am kind of compulsively interested in looking, smelling, tasting as they develop. And, you know, if you have one of those specially designed systems, every time you open it to look, smell, and taste, you're letting the oxygen in. You're defeating the purpose of your um, uh, cleverly engineered system. So, I mean, I just, I just don't use that, and I just don't worry about it. But if it really bothers you, there are, there are several different kinds of systems for fermenting um, uh, in ways that protect the vegetables from, you know, any kind of exposure to oxygen. Great. Will Feedham writes in, uh, this is an exciting episode. Thanks for having Sandor on. I'd really love to know about tempeh with non-soy substrates, tips, techniques, and pointers. Uh, and second question, if allowed, can we get any more details on techniques for exotic flavors from koji and how to find the strains that create them? So like non, non-soy tempeh and then like exotic strains of, uh, of koji. Okay, let and- me answer non-soy tempeh and then you might have to remind me. Okay. Uh, what part two is. So non-soy tempeh, you know, you, t- t- the, 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 the tempeh uh, uh, spores, the rhizopus uh, oligosporus, are, are actually very versatile. And, um, you know, you can grow them. I, I mean, I've used different kinds of beans. Generally, I mix a grain component in with the beans. The key uh, uh, with the beans is not to cook them till they're soft. You know, when I eat beans, uh, you know, the other the other day I I, I cooked up some pinto. Uh oh. Uh oh. They're wait wait, you know, wait Sandor, we, we lost you. Like we, we last we lost you a pinto bean. Start with pinto beans. You can't let that happen. You need to maintain the shape. So, you know, for soybeans, I'll use I'll split them because it, the the um, uh, the uh, fungus can't grow through the hull. So you have to get the hulls off, and splitting them also gives them more surface area, so they you know sort of lock more um, densely. Um, um, but soybeans, I only cook for half an hour, maybe 45 minutes, which you know barely is getting them cooked. Um, so, so the key is to just undercook things, cook things very lightly. If you're using something like split peas, which make a wonderful tempeh, you know, you're really talking about cooking it for like five minutes. You know, so some things have a very, very short cooking time, just till they're soft enough to get your teeth through. You don't want them to be luxuriously soft. If I, if I mix in grains, what I usually do is I, I add less water than the grains need. Um, um, so I'll cook them roughly one part grain to one part water. So when, they're, when they've absorbed all that water, they're still thirsty for more water, and then I'll mix them with the um, beans that have been cooked in water and are, 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 have wet surfaces, and the grain will absorb a lot of the excess water from the grains. or uh, The grains will absorb the excess water from the beans. So, I mean, those are some tips you also can make. I mean, I've made – I have a recipe in, in – fermentation journeys for potato tempeh, which I encountered in Switzerland. Um, so you definitely can, can venture out, you know, beyond grains and beans. The tricky thing is you don't want things to be soft and falling apart, and you don't want things to be excessively moist. It, like excessive moisture, um, you know, will, will support undesirable bacterial growth. So, um, um, you know, you, you, you have to make sure whatever you're fermenting isn't too, too wet. 
so those are the those are the major variables. But you know, definitely, definitely experiment. I mean, you can make tempeh, you know, out of a, a, a wide range of substrates. It does not have to be soybeans. Now, what was the second part of the question? A uh, second part of the question was uh, any uh, more details on techniques for getting exotic flavors from koji and where to find uh, the strains that create them. So like the citric acid, koji, and, and things like well, that. Well, okay, let, let me first of all say, like, I, I have not... I have not really grown out, you know, lots of different strains of koji. I, I've really only, you know, I've, I've worked with the strains that um, gem culture, so I've been buying um, uh, um, my uh, koji spores from for 25 years. Uh, you know, they have like, um, um, you know, five different strains that are mostly about different substrates, and those are the ones that I've used. I am aware that as there's been more international interest in fermentation, some of the big Japanese koji spore houses have been exporting them. And on my website, which is wildfermentation.com, I have a bunch of um, uh, you know, links to fermentation-related resources, and I have a link to one of those Japanese um, koji kin uh, uh, manufacturers where you can buy all of those different varieties. But I, I have no personal experience um, 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 you know, with, with these other uh, uh, varieties. M- most of my experiences come with varying the substrates upon which I grew grow the koji. So like I have some chestnut trees outside of my house. I've been making for the last few years uh, chestnut koji. Incredibly wonderful. The best shio koji I've ever had. You have American um, chestnut uh, trees? Is with, the, is with the chestnut koji. So, Wait. you know, I think, uh, um, um, you know, I, I like to vary the flavors really more than anything by varying the substrate. Um, and I haven't really experimented uh, uh, much at all with, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the more um, specialized strains of koji starter. Yeah. Uh, we, have a, we have a caller for you, but do you have American chestnut trees? No, no, no. You know, uh, those, those, those yeah. are, uh, no, I, I, yeah. mean, I, I mean, I have um, chestnut trees that are of, you know, Chinese right. or European origin um, in my Tennessee uh, yard. Right, right, right. Uh, we have a caller for you. Caller, speak up because he's having trouble <coughs> hearing our connection, which I apologize for. Sander, uh, this is Paul from Seattle. I um, I was curious about uh, if you had any tips on longer-term storage of, uh, of kasu, of sake leaves. Um, I've got a pretty big tub in my fridge from, a, um, uh, from a recently getting into it, but I'm not sure about like how long it lasts or uh, what the best storage conditions for it are. Well, okay. I, I, I mean, I can just tell you what I've been doing is I've got mine in a Ziploc bag in the fridge. And what I like about a Ziploc bag is, you know, I can get rid of most of the air. Like the, you know, oxidation, you know, and aerobic organisms are at the root of, you know, just so, so, so much food spoilage. So I've just found it to, I mean, I've actually been just using the same quart size bag for a year and a half. I just keep adding fresh kazu to it and taking kazu out to do things with it, and it's been fine. It smells great. Um, it tastes great. It's still enzymatically active. Um, um, so, I mean, that, that's sort of what I would recommend. And I think that what's better about a Ziploc bag than a tub is you can eliminate the airspace more easily. Okay. Good thing. 
Um, I've noticed with the um, the little tub that I've got is that the, that the um, stuff that's probably oxidized closer to the surface seems maybe a little grayish. And once you get below the surface, it seems a little uh, pinkish. Uh, is that Does that sound normal to you? Uh, okay, interesting. No, I've never seen mine turn pink. I've okay. never seen that happen at all. Uh, it's just really stayed a nice white color. But I would certainly remove anything that gets discolored uh, pink. I, okay. I, would get, I would get rid of that. Sure thing. Um, do you mind if I, if I uh, ask really quick, um, do you have any uh, recommendations for, um, like, maybe longer-term um, vegetable-based uh, ferments with it. Um, I've only used it for, uh, like, as a marinade for, like, short-cured meats before. Oh, you're saying the kasu? Yeah. Well, sure. I mean, kasuzuke. I mean, that's amazing. That, that's just like basically vegetables pickled in kasu. So in my new book, Fermentation Journeys, um, um, there is a section written by my friends uh, Kevin Farley and Alex Hosvan of the, pickled, uh, of the Cultured Pickle Shop in Berkeley. But, um, um, you know, one of the really interesting styles of pickles that they make are kasuzuke, and they shared their method for kasuzuke, and I've followed it and had wonderful, wonderful results. Um, but, I mean, you know, like roughly nine months for most vegetables is how long that would take. So that is definitely a longer-term process. It's not just vegetables and kasu. You mix some sugar and some salt in with the kasu, um, and, uh, 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 you know, and, and it takes some time. And you can go much longer, um, uh, um, you know, and especially with certain vegetables or smaller pieces of vegetables, you could potentially go, go shorter. Um, but, I mean, that would be an excellent, um, like, longer-term vegetable uh, 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 pickle that you could, you could use kasu for. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, this is uh, um, just natural. And also, like, right. you can use kasu to raise bread. I mean, I make bread all the time where I use kasu as the leavening. Oh, really? Do you yeah. mix it with yeast? Yeah. No, no, it has yeast. I mean, because the, you know, what, 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 what fermented the yeast? Uh, what fermented the the carbohydrates and the rice into the sake? It, you know, it's got yeast. Oh, cool. Yeah. So you just it's use got, it. It's got, um, it's got yeast. It's got lactic bacteria. It's got um, um, amylase enzymes. I mean, it's got it's got a lot going on. But really, you know, my favorite everyday way that I use it, I mean, not every single day, but frequently, is like a tablespoon of it in with a couple of scrambled eggs just gives the eggs such a beautiful flavor. Wow. Okay, cool. Well, this is a, a lot of reasons to, uh, to get the book. Yeah. Thank you so much, <laughs> go, Obviously, okay, go buy well, the book. you're very welcome. Uh, and, mm -hmm. John, we have a couple of late coming questions in from Patreon. You want to go? Two quick ones, yeah. Um, so this one is from Biff Dit. Recently, my kombucha has gotten slimy and viscous. I pitched the mother and restarted using a store-bought bottle, but it seems to be happening again. What can I do? I'm just going to say that's a terrible phrase. Pitch the mother is a terrible phrase. But go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not sure. I mean, before I would pitch the mother, I would always do a second batch and just see if it was just a one-off or, you know, I, I would do another small batch and just see before I pitched the mother. Okay. But I couldn't tell you what the cause of that is. Sorry. No worries. And then this one is kind of a double-pronged question, blackening and fermentation, touching on both the same things. So, but, uh, I'm sorry, how do what? 
It's this one touches on two things so quickly. Blackening rather than fermentation, but I figured it's worth asking. Uh, this one's from Payne and Jay. I make. More, I see. So like black garlic. Yeah, but then wanting to make a balsamic out of it. So I want to make black garlic balsamic. I was thinking of vacpacking garlic and putting in an insulated water bath at 60 centigrade for six to eight weeks, following the Noma uh, guidelines. Any issues with doing it that way? Anything which will kill me? And then any tips when it comes to making vinegar from that, or any tips when it comes to aging it in barrels, where to source them, what to source? prefer not to wait quite a long time and end up with something awful. I have no experience with balsamic vinegars or barrel-aged vinegars. Um, you know, the vinegars that I've done have all been like sort of shorter, t- shorter term, um, you know, countertop vinegars that are not, you know, um, um, aged and, and uh, uh, concentrated like that. So um, I'm sorry, I, 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 I'm afraid that I don't really have, um, you know, much to offer you. From a safety perspective, if you can reliably keep the product at 60 degrees centigrade, centigrade, which is 140, you, you could keep it there for the rest of your life, and it's not going to damage you from a bacteriological. Ain't nothing growing at that temperature that is going to damage you. So it's 100% safe. As to how it's going to taste, who knows? Who knows? Uh, I never had it before. It's like I tell my son when he eats uh, more... Uh, squid ink than any human being has ever eaten before. It's like nobody knows the health impacts because nobody's done it. Try it, right? Uh, um, Yeah, it's true. I mean, you know, some people who I've talked to, like what they like about, you know, this method of speeding things up by keeping, you know, keeping keeping them at uh, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Celsius, so that the, um, you know, koji enzymes can optimize and do their thing, you know, really quickly. Um, You know, what some people like about it is that, you know, sort of, you know, most... Bacteria can't grow at that temperature. Um, you know, on the other hand, m- most cannot, but some can. And some of the ones that won't be growing because the temperature is so high are the acidifying bacteria, which are the things that would typically protect a food from, you know, from other kinds of bacteria. So really, the, you know, the, the answer is, I don't know. Um, you know, the fact that we haven't heard of any problems like, suggests that it's probably not a problem, but, 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 but I, um, uh, you know, definitely could not say for sure that, um, um, uh, you know, you could keep something at that temperature indefinitely without any uh, 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 concerns. Uh, one last quick troubleshooting question, this one from me. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, this is personal, real, uh, I have a lot of bran in my house, like just a lot of bran, like a lot. And so like I, I was doing bran pickles, um, but wheat bran, not rice bran. And they are, are delicious for about a month, and then all of a sudden something turns in them, and they're not delicious anymore. And I know I'm supposed to be able to keep it forever. Do you have any, any experience with the, your bran pickles just turning bad all of a sudden? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, it was called summertime. Man, maybe it's just too hot in my kitchen. I, mean, I live in a place that just gets really hot. And mm. what I learned in Japan is that, like, a lot of people just rest their nuka in the fridge for the summertime. So, I don't know, you know, without knowing about what time of year, like, I mean, the most obvious thing to me is the thing that changes the weather. Well, I mean, I live in an old school New if York City apartment. It's shifted, but, you know, we don't really have information about that from, you know, from, from the question. But that would be my first guess. Yeah, my, my, my kitchen's 80 to 90 a hundred percent of the time, because I'm in a New York City apartment. 
Like 100% of the time, it's 80 to 90 degrees. Well, the thing <laughs> is, you can't necessarily do every ferment in every environment. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you cannot maintain a nuka, uh, you know, nuka with a, um, uh, you know, with a delicious flavor. I mean, um, um, you know, necessarily in every environment. Like, maybe it needs a cooler environment. Yeah. All right. I'll try to find a cooler place in my house. As the as the other as the other uh, uh, listener questioned earlier in the day, well, listen, I I really appreciate uh, you coming on. I'm sorry we had the technical stuff and you can't really hear uh, too well what we're saying, but if you you know you have a permanent invite whenever you're in New York, come in, say howdy to us. It's been a real honor having you on. Okay, great. Well, I'd love to do it in person uh, 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 next time, but it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Um, um, you know, thanks so much for um, uh, having me on. And for your excellent questions. And um, I look forward to uh, speaking again sometime. All right. Well, thank you. And the book, again, is Fermentation Journeys out now. Uh, Sandor Katz. Thanks so much. Cooking Issues. (laughs) 